Chapter Seventeen of *The Column of Dust* by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter Seventeen: Constance and the Real. It is our own notion of the first and only fair, yet embodied in a substance, yet dissolving again into a sort of imagination. It is beyond me. Newman, Callista. Martin sat by the fire. Once he shivered a little and coughed suddenly, and Constance looked at him with terror. It was an evil night of sleet and icy winds. He had come to her lodging cold, wet, and exhausted, but with that invulnerable radiance of his untouched by these outward disabilities. The watcher looked at him with sympathy, with envy almost, comprehending the haste and ardor of the escaping spirit, hot-foot for the real. Martin now shone for him with a simple light, the more noticeable amongst the cloudy personalities of the town. He was assured in his possession of something to which this comfortable, wage-earning horde had never attained, something which even Phoebe, lit by her selfless passion, even Constance with her eager peering, could not see. The source of this splendor was not far to seek. The shrine of the cup stood upon the table between them. Its doors were closed. A heavy covering of tooled leather shrouded the jeweled angels and winged animals, and the mystical plates that went about them from an inquisitive world. Even thus disguised, as it were, in traveling dress, it seemed alien as any pilgrim angel amongst the nomads tensed from the busy, shabby civic life into which it had been thrust. So remote and starry a thing might be actual in the city of Saras. It was impossibly fantastic in cheap lodgings near Notting Hill. Yet it stood there as it had stood upon its altar, defying the competition of material things whilst meeting them on their own plane, a tangible link between two worlds. The spasmodic thunder of the motor omnibuses on the main road the rattle of the lighter traffic, the crescendo of the postman as he came, house by house, down the street. These sounds, broken at intervals by those sudden, hateful, inexplicable cries which puncture the London night, had but thrown into a greater relief the deep silence in which the grails dwelt apart, ringed in by its invulnerable reality. She had exclaimed when Martin stood with it in the doorway, Oh, not here, not here. There's no place for it in this world. He had answered, This world is its home. No, no. The pure earth, the clean country, perhaps. But not this foul city. This foul city, said Martin, is many worlds, not one. It lies fold upon fold, and white folds are hidden amongst the rest. And where there is one mind left that can love it, it has a resting place. Can you find such a lover, such a safe guardian, here? It was the watcher who answered this question, crying out in her mind humbly and urgently, casting himself down before the exile of eternity, clamoring for the control of his friend's human forces, that therewith he might serve, even from the deeps of the dream, the idea which he loved. Now they sat, as it were, by consent, in silence. Martin's words, the watcher's answer, 
had loosed activities too urgent to find issue in speech. Constance glanced perpetually from him to her other guest and back again, trying hard to orient her mind amongst these incredible adventures. She knew now the reason of his coming, knew, resented and opposed it with the whole strength of her will. She was beset by emotions, alive with them, each by turns claimed dominion, announcing itself as the accredited agent of that self which sat shrouded within. They grouped themselves, as it seemed to her, into two camps. The army of human things spread very widely, terrible with the banners of life and over against it, a little company, most strange of aspect, to which as yet she could not give a name. From the camp of humanity, that sad, vague longing for the warm touch of common life, for respect, protection, the peaceful domination of a cruder, stronger will, which had tugged so cruelly at her heart in the moment of Phoebe's sudden exhibition of normal and irrational love, it urged on her the joyous necessity of a descent to the sweet and trustful intimacies of the earth, to no fierce appeasement of instinctive passions, but rather to the gentler commerce, the domestic pieties of mutual help. It whispered, Vei solis, woe to the lonesome, and glossed this bitter warning with the reminder of the years that she had missed. It suggested to her, as no mean objective, the completing as far as might be upon this human plane of a life that was clearly incomplete. She foresaw the careful forging, the consolidation of friendships, of the human social link. She saw Andrew, through the long years, coming to her for the understanding which she could never return, Muriel taking an affection that she would not repay. She conceived of herself giving and spending, a center of selfless activities, accepting on every hand love, obligation, duty in the sacred name of life, and of life herself as rewarding the faithful initiate with new and mysterious gifts. She saw also the one blot upon this prospect, Vera, and decided that she too must become the object of a wholesome but not inconvenient interest, material for the builder's hands. All her late adventures had but seemed to endorse the propriety of these emotions, their vast opportunities, the finality of the experience on which they converged. They broke it to her, as it were, that the little things of life were, taken collectively, worthwhile for the little animals which life had bred, that the amenities of camp life mean more to the private soldier than the far-off idea for which the war was waged. This powerful attack was met by other forces whose action she would have resisted had she dared. Their battle was set against the claims of individuality, against all the tossing banners of the senses, however cunningly disguised. They came like auxiliaries from over sea, born on a strong tide, cold and pure, that seemed to have risen in the soundless deeps, and as a great ship coming by canals into the heart of fertile country, where the watery path runs fine between the serviceable mangled fields, will bring landsmen certain tidings of the hidden sea, a hint of far-off adventure lurking in the tarry ropes. So, with the intrusion of this company from unseen immensities, 
Constance felt upon her face the chill spray of the formless ocean beyond time. She knew but too well whence came these urgent powers. Once she had been shut with them in the chapel of the fells, and they had poured forth upon her, overwhelming her judgment and her will. Then she had fled their arms, though she could not escape their remembrance. They had followed her. They were not to be eluded. They pursued, they caressed, they held torches, from which a new radiance was cast on the army of life, so that its ranks took another proportion, its very standards shone with strange tints. The centre, it seemed, of their influence, its symbol was that enshrined chalice which Martin, leaving the dream, must leave behind. Its coming had brought close to her this terrible yet adorable world. It threatened to impose that world in its unknown obligations upon her mind. She was determined to refuse its presence. She would not permit her life to be deflected by an accidental encounter with a relic whose very meaning she did not understand, whose legend her intelligence refused. Her unrest was accentuated by the watcher's distress, possessed by the vision of an unimaginable beauty, feeling close upon him the very benediction of that idea which he had ignorantly pursued through eternity with such utter unsuccess. He yet clung to the friend whom he loved. With an odd touch of human feeling, he now desired for her the happiness which she had chosen, rather than that tranquillity which his reason would have accorded to her. She was bent, clearly, on tasting it to the full, this tangle of love and death, this terrible combination of intimate union and utter loneliness. Since she was set upon it, even to his own despite, he would help her, and yet there was the one love, the one will, the beautiful, the adored, the unattained, only to be reached by him now, in so far as he could drag her with him on the way. But she did not wish to go, she would not lend herself to his adventure, and she too, as he dimly discerned it, had her rights. The watcher began to taste something of man's awful choice between his neighbor and his god. When the silence had lasted a little while, Martin said to her, Suppose you talk to me about it. It? she replied. The problem that is pulling you apart, air it a little. It is a splendid opportunity, you know, because I am going to die. Confessors, I think, should always be dying men. Detached, she corrected him. Uh, am I not? You are a lover, she said, and a fanatic, which is the same thing. You will show no mercy because you are convinced, but I'm not, and I don't wish to be. Your lodger is. But there is another side to my life, a real, warm, actual side, and I want to live it. You would think it commonplace, foolish, unworthy, but it's alive. It means that I matter to another human being. It means that one is not alone. I have tried solitude. I can't bear it. And you would drive me back to loneliness for this. You would not be lonely. I should, alone with invisible things, the most terrible solitude of all. And now I am nearly happy. That may be. I've got a friend, 
a stupid, ordinary friend who is kind, and another, a foolish woman who's lonely, who I can help. It is something to lean on and something to do, something solid in life. Oh, I know it seems absurdly vague and scrappy. I know that it will go when we are dead. But I want it now, all the same. Well, why not? I don't know, she said, but I'm afraid. I think that when the white light is poured on it, everything will change. There will be a shifting of values and deepening of shadows, a lighting up of hidden things, and I should not be able to go on. And yet, surely, my little satisfactions are innocent and reasonable on their own plane. May not my heart know what loyalty, gentleness, and gratitude mean? Once I gave my body the privileges of womanhood, that's over. But my life is not over. It goes on, and there are all the subtler senses to be fed, the delicate joys of action and intercourse to be tasted, the savouries of the emotional feast. I suppose they seem incomplete and unimportant, but they are important to me. They are small. You would find that a bigger love would answer best. She understood him and exclaimed, Don't make me take it. I can't. You do not know. I will not have it. I am not worthy. No one is worthy. Was I? I think you must have been, because you love it. But I don't think that I love it, and I know that I don't want it. You don't know that. You can't, because you don't know it, he said. And you never will know it until you care a bit. It's worth your while, too, just for the beauty, the intense, the incredible romance. Why, this, the discovery of it, and you've got to discover, you know, to do your own hunting from the first, is the most splendid, the most thrilling, the greatest adventure in the whole world. It's the one love affair that never wears out. It's ecstasy on ecstasy, the world remade for you. Fiat lux fresh every morning, and new things gleaming in the ray. How dull not to have it in your universe, the dream and the discipline, the everlasting rapture, and the never-ending quest. She caught for an instant his excitement, trembled under it. She had a glimpse as he spoke of that high romance, that splendid passion. Martin's phrases played upon her nerves as music might. She blushed, and breathed quicker, because they were beautiful and exalted her. She heard behind them the wild, solemn, and exultant song with which the ages moved to their destiny beneath the hand of love. Then the walls of the room ran back into perspective and caught her as in a vice. The piercing music faded, the sullen noises of reality returned. She said to herself, Don't be a fool and to Martin, no, it's no good, I dare not, it is too overwhelming, against my will, against my belief, it crushes me. It is, said Martin, very inconvenient, and that is what you really mean, you are afraid of it, afraid of being deflected, of hitching your wagon to a star and being dragged perforce up stony hills. Don't be a coward. I am not, but I can't react to this. 
that inhabitant of yours can, will, it is his chance. Do you owe him no duty? That's dreadful, too. Here he is, too strong for me. He is pushing, eager, he divines things ahead of me, and I am confused, in clouds. Won't you help me out? Tell me, explain. Enter the atmosphere of reality. You will get your explanations there. That is all I ask you to do, and all that he asks. You are stifling him with your frittered emotions, your little inconsequent loves and hates. Get into the clearer air, the purer light, and from there love life as much as you will. That is impossible, she said. This is a strong thing, a terrible thing, pulling. But the other, the thing I really want, is pulling back. They are both life, I suppose. They should both be part of it. But they can't be for me. I am sure of that. Best not to be quite so sure, answered Martin, and to trust life a little when you cannot see your way. There is a cosmic economy, you know, as well as a political one. The angels have their reserves. Here is your opportunity, a unique one, a very mighty thing. Take your talisman, live from that center, love from it, throw down the barriers, merge yourself in this. Don't quarrel with it because you do not see how it is going to fit. The wind that bloweth where it listeth never fits in. As well quarrel with that because you do not see how you are going to extract from it the oxygen that you need. You can't get it in any other way, you know, and you can't get the real except in its rare perpetration of the dream. Et verbum caro factum est et habitavit in nobis. And the word was made flesh and dwelt upon us. And we said, how very inconvenient, how disturbing, how hopelessly incompatible with practical life. Well, it is, she said obstinately. It makes a cleavage. You cannot blend it with the rest. Not a cleavage. It is plated right through the very essence, the actualization of life. But earth's got to be in it, in human life, I think. That's the whole point, the miracle of the link, the only place where earth is sanctified and safe. And how, she asked, is your link to be kept safe in the flux and tangle of the dream? How, when we come to the concrete, am I to preserve your relic of reality here, as it should be kept? Where is the altar, the solitude, the adoration? I am glad you put that one essential last. As for the rest, they matter nothing. It pleased me, whilst I could, to make things orderly and appropriate, to evoke again the atmosphere of the age that had loved it best. But of course the whole world, more than the world, all being, is just a sanctuary for this. His eyes were upon the shrine. They seemed to look through and beyond it into the very eyes of the Beloved, as if he had already begun to make his farewell to the dear visible sign of his joy, and passed in imagination to the secret moment of rapture, the extinguished torch, the silent embrace. Presently he said in a meditative voice, considering as it were from far off her curious case, how odd it must seem to the angels. There you are, you, the clean and glorious soul of you, 
imprisoned, fettered, peeping out, and you who might break the fetters might escape to the sunshine, the splendor, the dalliance for which you were made, are held back because you have persuaded yourself that your fetters are delightful, educative, even necessary toys. Ah, she exclaimed, the pretty words, they make me restless, they remind me of the bars, but if I am imprisoned, it's in a strong and cunning fortress, how can one slip the fetters, how can one escape? If you're honest, you will know when the hour strikes for it, each goes out by his own gate, it is always just wide enough to let one through, impossible to prophesy anything more than that. Yield yourself to love. Don't shirk it, that is all. You are on the very verge of waking, you know. You have fear and amazement, and that is the initiatory touch, the peep through the bars. But awe is for those who only look upon the mysteries. There is a rapture within and satisfaction of every desire, a place of refreshment, of light, and of peace. The watcher cried in her heart, torn between this fierce, all-satisfying love, the appeasement of his torments, the end of knowledge, the unknown object of his quest, and the troubled, dim-eyed woman bent still on feeling her way by the touch of material things along that pathway to reality which he discerned, straight and shining, before him. Martin rose. Well, you have got to do it, he said. You found the cup, and you recognized it, you and your lodger, you are the only efficient guardian, merely because, in spite of yourself, you know. But can you trust me with it? Anything might happen. It was her last unavailing wriggle under his hand. Yes, and if it does, it is all right. Don't you want to tell me what to do? No. Why should I know best? I have finished my trust. I hand it on. Now it is yours. You hold the key. Not for me to dictate. As he was leaving her, she ran before him, barred the door. I am afraid, she said, to be alone with it. Oh, how wise the people were who invented rites and priesthoods to shelter them a little and stand between. I cannot endure the light, the power. Shut in the room with it, day after day, alone with the real... It is too strong, I dare not. The rites and the priests, he answered, are no good once one cares. Then no shelter avails. I fear it. So gentle, he said, and so passionate, his feet amongst the lilies, his head girded with the thorn, humble yet omnipotent, desirous and elusive, the most intimate of mysteries, the most mysterious of intimates, a servant of his servants, drinking with them the loving cup of pain, transcendent personality, self-limited to the small powers of your soul. Is it this that you fear? The watcher cried, No, it is this that I seek, that I love. She put her hands over her eyes, then, desperately, as if she feared to share his piercing vision, would draw across his only windows the heavy curtain of the flesh. That by this action she blinded herself also, did not weigh with her. She was at a moment in which too great a darkness seemed less terrible than 
an excess of light. The blessed dimness shut her in, soothed her. It lulled for an instant the torments of her unavailing thought. Only Martin's last words echoed, phrase by phrase, in her empty heart. Each sentence struck sharp and clear, leaving a little hammer-mark upon the soul. She trembled, sick with apprehension of that which she could not see, but she was faintly conscious of strong and tender hands, as it were, that held her, and of her own helplessness within them, a weakness that was peace. The meshes of the will were close about her. She divined them. They were plaited into the amazing patterns which she could not understand. They clasped her crumbling body firmly, linking it with the furthest fringe of things. The darkness thickened, and the silence. Far away, as in a dream, she heard the sound of a soft closing door. Then within her mind she felt the gentle movement of the watcher. He said, Dear child, poor little one, have no fear. Do not resist. I am your friend. I desire your happiness. But without the idea, happiness is impossible in a world that contains both love and death. She stayed yet a little longer in the darkness, hesitating on the verge of the new life. When she looked up, she was alone with the grail. End of chapter 17